Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. How are you, people? Thanks for showing up. Thanks for coming through. We do this for you. It's all about you. So thanks for showing up. We love having you here. And uh, want to tell you about our show today. We have the one and only Tomer Peretz. Uh, incredible Israeli artist that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. So stay tuned. Before I get into it, I want to, of course, as always, encourage you to go to our website, notrealart.com, and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. You're going to discover some amazing artists and their artwork. You're going to read some incredible interviews and discover some great content, not the least of which is our new remote series by the one and only Badir McCleary video story series exploring public art in spaces around the world. What does it all mean? Well, Badir McCleary is going to explain it. And please be sure to check out Remote by Madir, available exclusively on notrealart.com. And also, of course, our artist grant, our 2024 artist grant is now open and ready for submissions. Uh, deadline is January 1st. So please be sure to get in there and play today. You can't win if you don't play. So why wait? Get in there and apply. Get it done so that you have the chance to win 2000 bucks and thousands more in PR marketing and support. So get out there. Notrealart.com. Today, we have a VIP in the house. I really enjoyed this conversation. This is a special dude. Tomer Peretz is an Israeli artist. He, since his early childhood in Jerusalem, Tomer has centered his artworks around painting. By focusing on the intrapersonal relationships in his life, he draws upon these people for an intimate take on portraiture. A pinnacle point in Peretz's life was serving over four years in the Israeli military in multiple locations around the Middle East. Life during the deployment was the only time when he was detached from creating works. Upon his return from the military, Tomer kept in motion and moved to South America while getting back into the arts through photography and painting murals. His reconnection with the people and places in his life fostered profound shifts in the way he approached art making. With materials ranging from oil paint to Sharpies, each subject is taken on it as a new interpretation by the artist. Peretz lets the intention of the work take precedent and the materials follow. Peretz now lives and works in L.A. right here, the City of Angels, the multi-year career artist. His works is a, they're accumulating at the cross-section of painting and performance. The past and present collide within his surrealist paintings turned NFTs. The Rebirth series examines both our most intimate relationships as well as our relationships with our past. Tomer Peretz is represented by a very fancy Italian gallery out of Milan. 
And uh, my Italian's not so great, so I'm afraid that I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> so I don't want to say. But anyway, go to Tomer's website and read all about it. TomerPeretz.com. That's T-O-M-E-R-P-E-R-E-T-Z.com. But I so enjoy talking to Tomer. Really soulful dude and obviously thoughtful dude and just really enjoy talking to him. I think we hit it off in a really beautiful way. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Tomer Peretz. Tomer Peretz, welcome to Not Real Art. Hey, how's it going, Scott? <laughs> it's better now. You're here, my friend. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for inviting Oh, thank you for coming, man. You're classing up the joint. I'm thrilled to have you. So where are we finding you right now? Are you in your office, your studio? Where about in LA are you right now? So I have two locations. I have office in the warehouse and I have the studio, which is in two different parts of town. So now I'm in my office in my warehouse. And in about two, three hours, I'm going to drive to downtown to the studio. Excellent. 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 Yeah. So you're spread out. LA is like that, right? Like <laughs> it's just a massive urban sprawl. I live in the Valley myself and uh, I love downtown, but boy, do I hate driving downtown. <laughs> yeah. So my warehouse is in Chatsworth. So I'm in okay. between Chatsworth and, you know, I spend a lot of time on the freeway. So it's like maybe my third place, you know, my third home. Yeah. Your third home. Right. And let me guess, you roll calls uh, while you drive, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah I, I run calls. The actual business is happening on the freeway. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You got to make use of that time because otherwise it's just, yeah, it's frustrating. What else can you do? <laughs> what else can you do, my friend? Well, here's the thing. From what I can tell, you can do a lot. You can do a lot. And I'm just so excited to learn more about your journey as an artist in the work that you're doing. I believe you have a new collection dropping, new capsule collection dropping on the fashion front soon. Maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm doing this space because it's like, it's like, you know, I don't sleep, you know, in the last few days, I don't sleep and the drop and it's like, it's, it's the main thing in my life right now. So yeah, you know, you just mentioned something that's very, very aggressive now in my life. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, and I tell you, and I don't know how, well, I believe I discovered you quite frankly, because I got an email or something. I don't know if you reached out or if we reached out or what, but I, I remember discovering your work and specifically your fashion. And man, I just thought, wow, this shit is hot. And I was like, oh, I want to buy it. I was like, oh, everything's sold out. <laughs> it's like, I was like, I was going to, I was like, oh, I want to buy that sold out, buy that sold out. I mean, what a wonderful line extension for your artwork, right? To, you know, wearable art. And what I love, you know, hearkening back to your roots as an officer in special forces in the Israeli military, bringing that forward into your new life as an artist, so to speak, and connecting those two worlds, something about it is really connecting, I think, to for what well, connected for me. Obviously, it's connecting for other people because it was sold out. So are these pieces one of a kind? Are you making limited editions? Like how many units are you making of, say, one jacket? Are you making one of one? Are you making one of 10? I mean, how do you approach your inventory? So the jackets are one of ones only. Each jacket is a piece of art. I actually, more than 50% of the collectors who bought those jackets, they don't even wear those. They don't wear those. Some of them frame them. They see it as a piece of art. So, and me too. And that tension 
to the garment and the detail and the artwork is like a painting. So it is one of one. But beside the jackets, there is very interesting tops, hoodies, and different shirts that are limited edition. So the drop is going to be 15 jackets only, one of one, and 44 hoodies, insane design, my own pattern, my own art on that. Everything is like from scratch is 44 hoodies only. So the drops are very small. The drops are very, very tiny. And that's unfortunate. That's why you see it as it's sold all the time because it is selling very quick. Don't forget it's very limited. Uh, you know, there is only very small amount. But every drop, you know, I'm going up. Like it's before it was 30. Now it's like 44 plus 15. So there's not too much going on. But there is a lot of this time beside the 44 and the 15 pieces, there is 17 more tops that are also one of one, different t-shirts and different tops, not really hoodies like futon and, and different design that I made that is also one of ones. It's like samples. It's like buying from someone. Yeah, right, right. Family. Right. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to be waiting for the drop. It's September 21st, right? It's yeah. 23rd? Yeah, okay. I'm waiting because I'm going to do my damn best to get one of these. These things are super just dope. I mean, I just love them. I think they're really, really cool. Really cool. Yeah. yeah by the way, funny it, thing? what? I made it in the beginning for myself, but yes. when it starts selling, I stop taking and I'm like, I, no, other people want that. So I'm like, I'm not even taking anymore for myself because other people want that. And there is so much I can do. So yeah, it's funny. I wanted to, you know, to get some for myself, but somebody <laughs> took it already. <laughs> well, you know, you're the generous, selfless artist uh, giving away your heart to the world. You know, I love that. I love that. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. I have some consolation knowing that I believe I could get one of those super cool bad choices t-shirts because I'll tell you what, I have made plenty of bad choices in my life. What are some of the bad choices you've made? Oh, man. <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> Not where you thought this interview was going. Tell you what, I make a lot of bad choices, and like most of us, I'll tell you what happened. I had one time, um, one night at the studio when I was very not on my best. You know, I just had a bad mood, and I had a hard time with my artwork. I had a hard time looking at my artwork, and usually in the studio, most of my art is not visible. It's like flipped, like not for me not to see my artwork, not to. It's like a song you like, and then you listen to the song for so many times, and it's like you, you can't even listen to it anymore. So what happened is I, in one night, I just whitewashes 12 original paintings with white. The funny thing is I don't really drink a lot of alcohol, but that night I was drinking, which I had a great time. It was not like going crazy and things like that. And when I woke up in the morning, I'm like, oh, my God, what I just did like I ruined an entire collection like my manager will kick me out the gallery not gonna pick anything I'm dead and that turned into one of my best collections that one and then I had another bad choice when I put one of my uh, original self-portraits I painted myself as an old person and I put it on fire and I filmed the process of the fire and People went off on me, like, how do you do that? Like, I got really bad backlash from my followers, from my collectors, from my managers, from the galleries, from everybody. Everybody hated me for doing that. I really couldn't see that painting anymore, but it turned to be uh, my number one print seller. 
after the burn. So the original was not exist anymore, but it turned into number one seller as the print. So, you know, we do a lot of bad choices and we are sometimes taking risks without even thinking we are taking risks, without even thinking we are doing another move. It just, like you translate that at the moment as that that's a bad choice, like I'm fucking up something, excuse my language. And this is what happened. And I intend to do those mistakes. Sometimes it works and turn into a great choice, but sometimes it just stays as a bad choice, you know? In this case, in my creation, I thought I'm ruining my entire relationship and my entire career and actually turned into a really, really good thing for me. I love that story, you know, because it sort of resonates for me on a lot of levels, but it personally, but it also, I mean, it, I mean, I've met a lot of artists. I mean, I feel like the role of the artist is to break things sometimes and challenge, right? I mean, it is, I mean, it is the role there is to challenge the status quo, right? And artists are, they're often moved by the spirit, (laughs) if you will, right? And that's it, right? Yeah. I think changing and trying to do things and getting out of comfort zone is a part of creative people. And most creative people in the world, they're not afraid to get out of their comfort zone and just try new things. So I'm trying. It's hard to get out of comfort zone because comfort is comfort. That's why it's called comfort. You know, it's like we are there because we are comfort. But um, it's something I'm trying to do a lot to get out of my comfort zone and try new things. Doesn't work all the time, obviously, but. And by the way, if it's selling and people, you know, and you're making money on it, right, and you're doing well, right, there's incentive, right, to just keep doing what you're doing. And so I know some artists who get trapped sometimes, right, because their dealer or their gallerist wants them to keep making the same kind of work because that's what's selling, right? And the artist feels a little trapped. It's happening. It's a good problem to have, you know. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, you know, don't forget, you know, it's uh, good and real artists don't want to create only what sells. They want to create what they want the people and the world to see and and to be part of. So, of course, we need to make money. Of course, money is a very important tool in the whole creation. But at the end of the day, it cannot be the main tool. It cannot be the goal because then you're not an artist. You're just a contractor, you know. So I think this is the difference. I wish both would work. I wish all the time we are getting out of comfort zone and we are coming up with something new, it will sell. It's not happening all the time, unfortunately. But yeah, we got to keep pushing and do more and getting out of more comfort zone and see if it sells. Well, I don't know what alcohol you were drinking that night, but it seems like maybe you should get some more, you know, just to have it on the side there because, be, you know, a couple drinks in, you know, it sounds like good ideas come to you. You know, you know what? <laughs> I'm not a good artist or I don't create well and I don't have inspiration. And technically, I'm not good if I'm not focused. Like if I'm getting high or drunk, it doesn't just work for me. So I'm just not painting well. I'm not focused. Usually, I'm having a Turkish coffee when I create because most of my work is is not splashing paint. Is Most of my work is very detailed. So it's hard for me to be drinking or smoke. I don't really smoke anymore, but smoking and getting high. And paint, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, I think that's one of the cliches, right? It's like, oh, you know, drugs, alcohol, they, they make me more creative. Actually, in my experience, over time, they might make you creative or inspired in the short term, but in the long term, it's sort of the law of diminishing returns, right? And so it's good to keep your mind, to keep your focus, yeah. Most of my mistakes in my life were under the influence, so it doesn't work for me. There you go, there you go. Well, okay, so in writing, I've done a, 
fair bit of writing over my career. And, you know, when you read or study a little bit about writing, they sort of say, you know, write what you know, you know, at least in terms of, you know, starting your writing career, write what you know. Clearly, our life experiences, you know, impacts our art making, whether it's writing or painting. Talk to me a little bit about what you know and talk to me about how what you know has impacted your art. How has your life growing up in Israel, serving in the military, you know, being uh, stationed in various places in the Middle East? Take us back and help us understand how your life informs your art. I grew up in a place that is not artistic at all. No artists are coming out of this place. I grew up in Southeast Jerusalem, which is a very um, aggressive place to grow up in, as far as the conflict, as far as the, the Israeli and uh, Arab conflict. And I was in the heart of everything. So as a young kid, my art was not for the people. My art was for myself. I used drawing as a kid just to get away off a classroom, like not listening at school. like the, So I was drawing a lot. I used to paint for myself, never showed it to other people because it was not the cool thing to do. The cool thing to do was to play soccer in my area. The cool thing to do was to know how to ride the horse of uh, the Arabs village out there. You know, like those were the cool things to do. And I was drawing and painting a lot for myself. And that's how I started to develop some kind of an outcry because as a young kid, I was already doing murals in my friends' bedrooms, you know. But I never called myself an artist. Like the word artist was not as part of my life. So I just, because I grew up in that area and I got, um, my father was a uh, special ground forces and my, my brother was a uh, special ground forces and my entire father's family. So it's like all of my school, the neighborhood, the family. So I kind of grew up to it, which I love it. As you know, even today, it's like, it's good memories. I have really good memories. You know, it, it wasn't easy. It was really, really tough. And now when I live in, a place like Los Angeles, and to look everything at my childhood and the place I grew up from a paradise, it's super weird. <laughs> and I like to take this experience and apply it on my art. I'm doing what I do for almost 20 years. And for the past 20 years, many of my projects are inspired and came from the way I grew up back in Jerusalem, the military, and what I've seen in the military. The time I was in the military, it was the second intifada. It was very hard time in Israel, which almost every day is a hard time, but that one was like super extreme. It was like a four and a half years that I was barely even in training. We were mainly fighting. We were mainly in operations. And we didn't even have the time to train so much because there was always something going on. But obviously I've seen a lot and I saw a lot as a young soldier. And then I became an officer and I became an officer for a very high ranked unit that used to be the first in every operation. It was used to be the first unit that goes first to the operation, whatever. I'm not going to go into details right now. But so it's an experience. I'm not there anymore. I'm done. I'm over it. I'm not in the war game anymore. I'm trying to translate my experience in a good way. I'm trying to uh, take the garment right now and the colors and make it a fashionable thing. 
I'm trying to show the positive about that and not only the negative. I don't want to talk about death all the time. I don't want to talk about my friends who got killed all the time. It's like, and you know, it's like I'm tired also to talk about the bad things because people like to hear about the bad, crazy things. Oh, this one got killed. You killed someone. So I'm, I'm, I'm not focused on that place. I'm focused on how bad a person I became because of that. And what is the relationship with my family and my friends from the military that came up from that? And there is a lot of positive things, you know, from it. So I'm trying to focus on that. I'm trying to talk about mm. that mm. place, the mm. positive things of the war. Mm. I mean, what do I know about <laughs> serving in the Israeli military? Absolutely nothing. However, the idea of conscription, you know, the idea that, you know, everybody serves, right, as a way of building unity or as a way of instilling, you know, pride, national pride or something like, you know, America, obviously, you know, it's a volunteer force, they say, right? So it's obviously a much bigger country. But I wonder sometimes, you know, would our democracy be in the state that it's in if there was a national service of some kind required of our young people? I, I'm happy not. I'm happy that here in America, you know, I have three kids. I have uh, oh, my do? daughter, she's 11. I have my son, he's nine, and I have another son, he's five. We always talk about the military because they see it's part of my home. I have pictures on my in my bedrooms of me and the military, all things. So we talk about it a lot. And the main thing I tell them, I'm so happy you don't have to do it. I'm so happy you don't have to hold guns at the age of 19. And I don't care what is it for. I'm so happy that you can choose what to do. You can pick and choose if you're going to go to college or you go to military. That's your choice. I didn't have a choice. I just went there. Now, I have a good story. Like, my story is positive. A lot of people I know, it's not a positive story. And I'm so happy that my son don't have to go to military. He doesn't have to. If he wants to, I will let him go to Israel, even to the American. We've been talking about the American military. He's like, what if I'll go to the Marine? I'm like, oh, just go. But you don't have to. And just the fact that we are in a country that you can choose to go and you don't have to, you can choose what to do, I think is a big thing. And in many countries, you don't have that choice. Great point. Great point. Well, after Israel, you lived in, as I understand, South America for a while. When did you come to L.A. and how did you end up in L.A. and why L.A.? South America was a backpacking trip that was supposed to be taken two months and it took uh, 11 months. You know, I wanted to keep travel and I wanted to go to the east side of the world, which is uh, was India back then. That's where I wanted to go. But I didn't have any more money. So I was planning to go to L.A. to work with some friend of mine in construction for a few months and uh, to keep going. But I just ended up staying here because as soon as I got here, I fell in love with the place. I met one artist friend and right away I started to paint. And the whole plan got changed and I just decided to stay in L.A. Met my wife, got married became a citizen, the whole thing. And I fell in love with Los Angeles. In the first few days, I canceled my whole plan. I said, you know what? This is where I want to spend my entire life. That's what happened now. <laughs> what year was that? 2005. 2005. Okay. And then do you remember what it was about LA that really resonated with you as the place you wanted to live? My first week, I met a friend who lived at a brewery at the, our district. And I just hang out over there. I loved it. I had a good time. I'm like, that's the life I want to have. He had a loft over there, and I was just a young guy who just I barely spoke English. 
I it was so cool to me. I'm like, you know what? I know how to paint. Like I can do what most people here do right away. It was maybe third or, or fourth day that I arrived to LA. Isn't that beautiful, right? When you find your home or your home away from home? You know what? I was here when I was 17. My uncle lives here for so many years. And, and I came to visit him when I was 17. So I kind of had the feeling I will come back one day. I always had the dreams to get out of Israel and experience other places in the world. So it's kind of my family kind of, they're like, we knew you're not going to continue living in Israel. Like it was kind of obvious. <laughs> <laughs> you're a global citizen. I mean, you're a world traveler, right? So, uh, you know, you the backpacking through South America. I think uh, you spent some time in India and Nepal and the Himalayas. Have you not? I actually just came back. I intend to travel a lot. It's part of my inspiration. You know, we used to call it a hobby travel, but, but I realize it's like part of my job to travel. Like if I don't travel, I'm not inspired. So every, I would say three to four months traveling, trying that my travels will be kind of long. The recent one was a challenging travel. I climbed Mount Everest up to Everest Base Camp, which was a three weeks trek. And then um, I went to do some meditation in Rishikesh in India. So from Nepal, Went to India. I spent some time in uh, Rishikesh a few weeks and then went to surf in uh, Sri Lanka. So it was kind of a long trip. And it's part of what I do, like to go out there to meet new cultures, to meet new colors, new fabric, new piece of art, new new paint, new material to bring it with me and start to create with that. And I've been doing that for the past 20 years, always traveling and always bringing new material and always meeting new people. And every time I come back with a good stories, something really good coming out of it. So it's become like as part of what I do. I call that research, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, it's research. That's it. That's it. Research and development. Yeah, it is. <laughs> R&D. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, listen, I mean, I just love your story. And, and obviously making art that resonates with people is it's such a humbling thing, right? You know, in many ways for artists and let alone when an artist gets representation. And uh, as I understand it, you're represented by the Fabrica Eco Gallery in Milan, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm being represented by Giancarlo. He's an amazing gallerist from Europe, from Italy, exclusive to Italy, yeah, over there. But he represents me now only in Italy. So yeah which is a great honor, by the way. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. So how did you connect? I mean, that's, I mean, you're here in LA and you've, you know, you've been all over the world. How did you connect with, you know, a dealer in Milan? I actually got introduced to an artist manager who lives in Milan kind of eight years ago. And his entire goal was to put me under Giancarlo roaster. So it took us four years, almost four years to get to the level and to fix so much of my work on the technical skills in order to be part of that roster. And I'm the only non-Italian person who is part of Giancarlo, which is an amazing and it's a really great honor for me. And since then, I was working with his manager on a few shows too. He retired and now I'm, I have a different manager, but in Los Angeles. So it's like, it's a management thing and they introduced me to different gallerists. So it's like, there's a lot of people in the middle you know, the art world is a very uh, close circle and it's very hard to meet people. So you always need to have another person who is pushing you and helping you. 
somehow. Networking, man. I mean, you know, the artists hate when I talk about it, but it's sales one on one. Like that, we hate that. Network. Hate <laughs> you that do. You know, we hate we that <laughs> you gotta I know. go and network. Go to a network. Go to that show and network. Like, I know. I know. It's horrible. It's horrible. Okay. Let's just call it making friends. We've got to make friends, you know, and that's just natural, you know? Well, in terms of your, I mean, here in LA, you have, you, don't you have your own gallery here in LA? Yeah. So talk about that. I had a gallery. Well, my business partners are the gallery and I was involved as a curator, producer and, you know, silent partner and the gallery, we had it for 10 years and it absolutely was one of the best and the worst things <laughs> that we ever did. How's it going for you? Tell me about the gallery. So, you know, when people hear a gallery, they intend to think it's uh, like the gallery presents few artists. You go there, you see some snobby person in the know that works at a gallery and barely going to talk to you. And if you're an artist, they're probably not going to accept you and look into your work. It's not the game. That's not what I have. By the years, I started to collect a database of customers and clients and friends, and I turned that into a community. And I realized that I needed a space in order to bring my community to different shows and different events. So I started this gallery thing seven years ago. I'm the only person who works in this gallery. I'm the only person showing in this gallery. So it's a gallery, but it's only me. And the reason I do that is because I have a community and we do a lot of events over there. And sometimes for some of the community members, I let them even use the galleries for their own things. So it's a hub of, I would say, between 400 to 500 people who are coming to all of the shows. They keep buying art. They keep buying a fashion t-shirts, hoodies, everything. They come to everything I do. And it's usually in my place. So it becomes some kind of membership place that you don't need to be a member in order to get in you can get invited just buying being as part of the community there is no like screening for people this guy can be part of it or this guy, everybody can be part of it the only way to get in it just if you buy a t-shirt from now on you're hooked we're gonna get you invites to all those events and and some of those events are artistic but they're not about paintings or fashion some of those events like we do a lot of shibari courses, which is Japanese bondage, for example. We did some even cooking sessions with some of my best friends who are chefs best in the world. So I do have a lot of even small events for 40 and 50 and 60 people. And this is the reason is it's just to keep the community together to it's just for fun, you know, to enjoy. And this is in downtown LA. And I do a lot of pop-ups and collaborations with other artists and other designers. For example, on October, I have a whole full month pop-up with an amazing, crazy, sick designer from Israel. And his stuff are out of this world. And now we are doing something together. So, so there is always something going on. There is always a plan and shows. And the people that are showing up, instead of right now inviting the entire world, we just invite a community. And the community is always, obviously, we have another thousand of people. But the people that are kept showing up where every event is anywhere between four to 500 people that are always coming. So it's fun, you know? So I call the gallery. It's my gallery, but it's only my stuff and my other people in the community stuff there. I love that. It's a, you know, multi-purpose, hybrid, experiential, immersive environment. Yeah. Sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I would say once you get in, it looks like 
a Disney World for old people, you know, for older people, not for kids. It's like, you know, people who likes to create and like art. It's amazing because you can sculpt her. You can do whatever you want over there. It's a huge space. It's like almost 4,000 square feet of a place that a lot of people always come to hang out and, and even watch me to create. You know, sometimes I create and if the door is on, but people are coming like from the community are coming with their coffee to sit there for like half an hour and then they leave. So it's fun. Well, I'm coming to the next event. <laughs> it sounds on like a fun first. time. Yeah. It's hey, oh, well, there you go. Okay. Good, good. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> I will. Yeah. 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 Thank you. When we had our gallery downtown, we were on Winston between Los Angeles and Maine and fourth and fifth, like in that area. Where are you guys located? Broadway and third. Broadway and third. Great. Nice. Nice. Great location. Yeah. It's amazing what yeah. downtown has become. Yeah. I love downtown. It's super grungy, crazy. Yeah. yeah. You know? It's um, real. It, it's, it's very I mean, real. If I, don't, if I don't hear fire department every hour, something is wrong. Like I have to hear <laughs> like a helicopter up in the air, you know, it's like yeah, there is yeah, some car yeah. chases. If there is no car chases that day, I'm not inspired. Right. Well, it's funny because when my wife and I started having kids and we decided to move out of the city out to the valley, I said, I, if I'm not at risk of getting mugged, I don't feel alive. You know, like I don't want to move to the suburbs. <laughs> this is not exciting right. in the suburbs. Yeah. Good for kids. Not good for me. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. 4,000 square feet. I mean, that's a big space. That's nice. It's a big space. And I have also the fourth floor, which is a 10,000 square feet. That place also belongs to me, but I more like rent out that space for different art shows and different exhibitions. So bigger organizations usually renting out that space. So sometimes I do my own shows there too. There's so much to do and the place is always busy. And we had a plan right now to get another space in New York. We want to expand, but we are trying to keep it a boutique. Like we don't want to become a corporate. Like we don't want to become like, you know, a huge company with a bunch of employees and losing control in our people. Because I think the magic in the community is that everybody has access to me. I'm talking to everybody. I'm answering text messages. So we don't want to lose it. It's fun and it's big. But yeah, you guys should definitely come and check it out. It's super Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Uh, so I'm noticing behind you there on the shelf, you've got a couple of awards. You know, I believe about 10 years ago, you won the, was it the author, Sizik? How do I say this? Yeah. Sizik Prize? I think they said Zik. Zik Prize. Zik. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I went to public school. Tell me about that award. You know, it was quite the honor, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It was a competition of a lot of artists. It was very, how would I say it? Very exclusive competition. It was very hard to win, I guess. And it was very, yeah. Words, it's yeah, cool. <laughs> well, yeah, why do you think that you won? To be honest, I don't think I was the best. Well. I think <laughs> okay. No, no, just you know, I'm just just being real, you know. Okay. I think other artists I've seen other artists with much better technical skills than me. I think the subject matter, I think the story made it, which is actually that's what makes you a I think better artist, but I think it's the moment. The painting that I was winning with was two paintings, Kids with Gas Mask and uh, Funeral. It's uh, two uh, pieces I uh, worked on a long time ago. I think it was during a war, during the Israel-Lebanon war. And I think I nailed those two paintings right on the right momentum. And I think that's helped a lot to win. Just being honest, you know, I've seen really good 
work over there. And I'm like, I was shocked that I won. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I initially chuckled because, you know, I feel like, you know, so many artists I know anyway, you know, battle with this sense of imposter syndrome or what have you. And, you know, you said I wasn't the best, but the subject matter, right? And so much of at least art that resonates with me is provocative. It's challenging. It may not be the most technically sophisticated piece of art, but it's powerful. It says something, right? And the idea that you focused on the war and the casualties of war and the collateral damage and, you know, all of that ugliness, you know, must have been incredibly disruptive and provocative compared to, you know, maybe other work. You know, listen, growing up in America in the 70s and 80s, I'm, you know, Gen X, I'm 53, you know, I grew up in a relative time of peace. The Vietnam War kind of come to an end, early 70s. And most of my friends, most of the people that I know, never really had to deal with death, right? And, you know, when you live in a conflict zone, you know, death is all around, right? You're faced with your mortality. My grandfather was actually a minister, so he would preside over weddings and he would preside over funerals. And when I was six, my best friend had died in a, he was accidentally, you know, electrocuted and died at six. And I remember, and where I grew up, you know, we used to do uh, open casket funerals. And so at six years old, I remember touching my best friend's cold, dead body. Well, my mom trying to console me, of course, you know, well, he's in heaven now. He's all of this, right? But I remember being forced to face my mortality at six years old, right? And a lot of people don't have to face their mortality, right, until later in life. And by the way, God bless them. I wouldn't wish my journey on anyone else, right? But the point is, is that being aware and being conscious of our mortality you know, on a certain level, I guess could be hugely traumatic for many people and how you react to that varies. I mean, I think for myself, you know, I got lucky because I decided to enjoy my life, you know, like there was a joy de vivre that came of that, you know, because I realized life was short and life was, could be short and unpredictable and what have you. And so let's enjoy every minute. Let's enjoy every day. How has mortality informed you and your life and your work as you grew up facing the dark side of the conflict in which you found yourself? Such a good question, man. I think for every action and choices in your life, there is a consequences. And for me to be in uh, ground forces and to be in the war, and it's a choice, by the way, you don't have to be a warrior. You can be a cook in uh, some base in uh, Tel Aviv if you want. You, do, you don't have to be in Gaza you don't have to. So you have to serve, but you don't have to be a real a warrior in the military. So it comes with pros and cons. It, it comes with consequences. You know, it, it makes you a very strong man. It makes you a very strong person. It makes you a person who might can go through a lot of hell, but not going to, you know, nothing will bother him. And you're just going to be a much stronger person mentally and physically. But it brings with it a lot of issues and a lot of problems, a lot of traumas. And things that people will never be able to understand. So some days I'm fortunate that I've seen that people. And some days it's not worth that. Some days we are like, 
I don't care. It's not worth that. It comes a lot when I, um, around my kids, I'm okay with myself. I'm very happy with my life, but I'm not going to push my kids to go to the military and to do what I did because uh, I think I was lucky. I'm lucky to be able to talk to you right now. I have a lot of friends that cannot even talk to you. So even if you want to talk, you they can't, they cannot even operate the way I operate. I'm very lucky and it's great. But if I deep into thoughts about that, that could be very bad. That's why I'm like, my son is like, I'll go to college. I'm like, good job. Go to college. You don't have to risk yourself in order to come and say, I'm a man. You know, I become a better person. Let's go to military. But it, it comes with a lot of issues too. It depends, you know, how I woke up in the morning sometimes. You know, it's like, it changes a lot, you know, so hard to tell. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about my mortality. There isn't. Ever since I was six, I think I just knew that we die. Did it make you a better person? I think so. I mean, it made me a more grateful person. It made me, I think, a more present person. But I think to your point, right, I also think it made me a bit more paranoid, a bit more, you know, there's downside too, right? But it did, I think perhaps the greatest gift it gave me was to appreciate my family and friends and appreciate the life that we have, no matter how long or short, you know, that it is. Yeah. Look, seeing that people will come to you probably in many parts in your life, their memories and stuff like that, and good and bad. If we will know how to turn it into a good experience, that would be great. You know, being grateful is might be cliche a little bit, be ungrateful, you know, but being grateful is maybe one of the best things that can happen to you from seeing that people being grateful yeah. for your life. Yes. I don't mean it flip at all. I, you know, you know, we say, oh, I'm grateful. Well, but, you know, it's a deep sense of gratitude. But, but it was interesting because, you know, as I said, because my grandfather was a minister, like I saw a lot of death, you know, just because he was presiding over the funerals all the time. Right. And so I actually saw the death of a few other parents losing children, you know, and no parent should outlive their child. Right. Like, you know, that's not what we want. Right. That's not natural. But it happens. Right. And so it's interesting because one of the downsides I think that I had was like, I was like, I saw the heartbreak that parents who lost children had and the vulnerability. And I so never wanted to have children as a result of it. I was like, I don't ever want to have kids because, and I don't know that I consciously realized it at the time, but, but I think as a defense mechanism, I just saw how broken these parents were. And I said, I don't ever want to be that vulnerable. I don't ever want to be that broken. I don't ever want to be that sad. So I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm not going to risk it. So I'm not going to have kids. Of course, life happens. And, you know, in my journey, you know, I found the woman that I wanted to spend my life with. Guess what? She wanted to have kids. <laughs> and, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it was a, an amazing thing to come together and with my journey and her journey and reconciling those. And I'm proud to say that I'm a dad now. How old is your? I got two. I've got my daughter's 11 and my son is six. You know, and yeah, I put myself out there, but it was sort of like, by the way, at 42, okay, like old dad, right? 42. And I just had enough of being afraid, 
You know, I realized like I was afraid and I was being selfish and I said, fuck that. Let's do it. You know? Yeah. I'm so happy to hear it. You know, it's like you overcome, you know, a trauma that you had. And this is, I think it's a life goal is like overcome trauma because every person has a trauma. Every person has a trauma. If you know that or doesn't know that, if you define it or, or you diagnose or whatever, every person has a trauma. Understanding trauma and overcome trauma, I think it's a big bonus in life. You know, most people don't have that luxury to be able to overcome a trauma. I think it's a big thing. That's super cool. That's super cool. I like that. You know, I think being afraid of having kids and then having kids, it's a big thing. Now, I'm actually the opposite. I brought kids and now I'm afraid to have kids. So <laughs> <laughs> now i'm like no now i'm like you know what if you don't want kids you don't have to have kids i'm like this is my attitude today you know it's like yeah 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 you don't have to. it's okay you're not gonna have kids you know <laughs> well you know you would know <laughs> yeah parents know that's it and you know it's people have asked me about it you know and i say you know hey to each their own i mean everybody's on their own spiritual journey and I was on mine and, you know, got to a place and that worked for me and, you know, and everyone's different and people have to make decisions according to their own conscience and their own needs and wants and beliefs and whatever. And so all we can do is lead with compassion and empathy at the end of the day, right? Well, as a spiritual wanderer, because I, I get the sense that you're a spiritual wanderer, my friend, as a spiritual wanderer, where do you find hope? I don't look for it. Just happen it's exist you know it's like it's around so i'm not looking for it i'm not searching hope i don't have a specific platforms where I, or places where i go to find some hope look i'm a very grounded person i know what i kind of what i do i'm very connected to myself i think it comes by itself to be honest with you i don't look for it i don't try to search hope right right yeah i get that I get to a point, like if I have a project or I'm taking risk and, and, and projects and something, I, I like to go all in. I go all the way and I'm okay with failing. I fail a lot. I fail a lot. I get the slap. I take it and I keep going. It's something maybe, it, maybe it's a personality. I, things I do and I want, I just, I never give up. I have patience. I keep going and I go hard. I'm very aggressive when I want something. I exhaust all people around me until I get it. So <laughs> wear them down. <laughs> I think it's a personality thing, you know? Yeah. I love it. I love it. I'm going to ask the same question slightly different. Where do you find or do you find hope on Playa? Because I noticed that you and I are both burners. How does Burning Man inform your outlook on life? So look, for me, Burning Man is a vacation. I'll be honest with you. The first few years... I do Burning Man many years, 12 years, and no, actually over. The first few years were like, let me go get inspired, meet people. And I did it like that for a few years. I was very involved in everything. Now for me, Burning Man is a vacation, I'll be honest with you. It's just to go out there, put my phone away, put it on airplane mode. I don't have time. And it's one of the only places in the world where you don't have schedule. You don't have to be somewhere at a certain time. You go out of your camp. Sometimes I come back after 24 hours without even knowing what's the time. I read a time through the sun, you know. I meet new people with no business cards. Like, I don't even, I hang out with people I don't even know their names. 
I don't even know what they do. I don't know what they're from. I don't even ask those questions. I don't care about that. So it's like, for me, Burning Man is a different dimension that I can go spend some time with people with no layers, with no ego, with no costumes, with no with no customers of like suit or being an artist. Like everybody looks the same kind of with all the crazy clothing. So for me, it's a, a different dimension to go to enjoy it and to come back to reality. So I take it as a very different type of different earth, different yes. life. Yes. Different parallel universe. Yeah. 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 It's a parallel universe to go and experience that and then come back. So I'm not taking it too deeply. Look, I pray every morning. You know, if this is your question, I do pray. I'm a God believer. I believe in God. I believe that there is a much stronger power above us, behind us, under us, all around us. You know, something is managing this energy. Uh, you can call it God. You can call it Earth. You can call it Allah. You can call it Jesus. You can call it whatever you want. For me, it doesn't matter. If I see people going to the church and pray, I hug them. If I see Muslim people, you know, that pray, because for me, they believe in a higher power. And I do believe in a higher power as well. And I do pray and I do talk to him. So this is basically what, I don't know if hope it's what's giving me, but it basically tells me not everything is up to you. You can just try and do your best in your abilities to be a better version of yourself. The rest, it's him, her, they, whatever. I love that. Well, it gets to humility, right? I mean, and just, you know, the old saying, fear of God. I mean, you know, it's like wisdom starts, you know, with the fear of God. It's just this notion that we are but a piece of a puzzle I agree with that yeah yeah you know yeah Toma Pretz I am so grateful man that you came yeah. through today and sat down and chopped it up with me this is just beautiful hell yeah I had fun man this is so much fun <laughs> thank you for inviting me Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad we found each other somehow some way before we sign off tell our listeners where they can find you online I'm so accessible, like just tomerperetz.com. It's a website going uh, under construction, but you can still log in. There is a contact form, meaning you can get invites to the community shows. You can send us an email. We are very responsive. I have a community manager. Her name is Yumi. She is on the email on every member. She knows every member. She's on it so hardly so she's amazing and she accepts everybody and yeah so it's basically tomer parrots if you don't remember just google tomer i will pop up somehow in english obviously because there is not too many tomers in english out there so yeah it's super easy super easy yeah, just tomerparrots.com. we'll have it all in the show notes and stuff too so we'll make it easy for people but tomer you're the best man thanks so much for coming through you have a beautiful day go make some art thank you man. thank you Thank you so much. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person real soon. Right on. We'll send you an invite soon. You got it. You got it. Right on. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcasts and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.